Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. to Wild Black, a seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. So welcome, 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 welcome. Um, First thing we want to start out saying thank you, thank you, thank you to our growing listener base. Um, thanks for the love. Uh, we could shout out everybody one at a time, but it's, it's too many people. So we're just going to say a big thank you to a lot of the folks who've downloaded our podcast, um, made comments on Facebook. Uh, we're actually starting up our Instagram uh, posting relatively soon. So, Twitter's growing. Yes, yes. So thank you, thank you, thank you to all the folks who've who've uh who've, who've spent some time listening to Wild Black. Uh big thanks for James for hitting us up on Twitter. James said, "Please keep this podcast going. I live in Utah. This is the only blackness I get in my life. It feels so good to hear people who understand what it's like living in America." Now, look, black. real talk. I, you know where we came from. Yes. I feel James on that. When you when you drive down the street, and you don't see nobody black, and when you do, you're like, "Do I know? I should be like, hi. Do I should should I pull him over and introduce myself? Mm-hmm. Should I shake his hand? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, man. Every time I come back to the Atlanta airport, it's just so much love. It's I get off the plane, I'm like, oh, it's so happy. It's like niggas everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere you see, like, oh, I'm, I'm home. It yeah. took me a minute to not want to introduce myself to all of them because. Back at the crib, it was like, hey, you must be you new. Know when I first got to the A, I used to wave at everybody. Like, <laughs> I, got, I was here, I was like, hey. I'm like, like, yeah, man. Then your hands started cramping up. <laughs> y'all doing? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so, and we wanted to also uh, give a couple more shout outs. Um, yes, yes, who left the review on Apple Podcasts. It's all about time um, for intelligent, relevant conversation about the African-American struggle in America uh, and her comment. This is her comment. And she says she loves the podcast and we, we're going to continue. We're going to keep it going. So, and so, we love you for loving us. Right. Right. We, we appreciate that. Uh, but, but you know what? It's, it's, it's wonderful when we get our love. Um, but you know, it is some haters. And hey, they everybody mad. is not, is not happy about what <laughs> they we're talking are mad. about. So, so let me, let me kind of give you one. Um, <laughs> and this is one who's who's not happy, but not everyone is happy, and they are not afraid to tell us so. To tell all your racists and, and bigots who have found your way to our social media pages uh, from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You, you. you help us as well. You fuel. Uh, you fuel the reason why we do it. Um, you fuel our intensity. You fuel our uh, need to make sure that we continue and, and make sure that we can continue to educate our. 
our people. And you let us know we're on the right path because if we're pissing you off, we're doing something right. Right. Because you got to think it's something about you that this is pissing you off. You That's should it. actually be congratulating it. But since you're not, thank you. Um, with that, let's let's continue to, to, to kind of push into the podcast and and open up our next uh, our next session. And I, I, I got one message to all the racists, racists and all the bigots, <laughs> like from the bottom of my heart, like, fuck you very, very much. <laughs> like real talk. You know. <laughs> All right, so everybody, make sure that you um you catch us on our social media. Uh, our Twitter is up now. That is Wild Black PC. Our Facebook page has been active for a while. That's that's at Wild Black Podcast. Always hit us up on our email, Wild Black Podcast at Gmail. Let us know what you want to talk about what you think about the episodes, what you want to hear. Just talk to us, and we want to talk back and make sure we represent you well on this podcast. And today, we've got another guest in the studio. She's been sitting here quietly waiting for her turn to burn. Uh, Her name is Melanie Calhoun. I'll give her a brief introduction, and then I'll hand the the mic over to her for a couple of moments just to to talk to you and start to warm you up. Melanie's a two-time graduate of FAMU. I'll forgive her for that. I'm a Southern University graduate. I'm proud. I won't hold We are all proud. <laughs> so I won't hold that against her. Uh, she's got her undergraduate and her master's from FAM. She's a diversity <laughs> and inclusion consultant with expertise in studying the effects of racism and bias in our organizations. Uh, most of us have felt that subtle and overt racism in our organizations. She's an emphasis on work culture and environments. She helps organizations improve diversity and inclusion strategies, establish clear diversity and inclusion goals, and create long-term strategies addressing the structural inequality that exists inside of these organizations. In addition, she's got quite a bit of real-world corporate experience. She has both participated as well as led different teams and organizations inside the marketing function. So she's dope, like. She came highly recommended from a couple of um, thank you, thank you. relationships we have in common. And I, was one, I want to turn the mic over to her and let her talk to you a little bit more about herself. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. A um, little bit about my background. Like, thank you for the introduction. It's interesting because um, the work that I do now, prior, you know, prior to starting the diversity and inclusion work, I was a marketer, a marketing executive. Spent over 15 years in corporate America, and in most instances in the industry that I was that I was in, I was always the only the youngest, the only black person, the only woman. All of these things, and I typically, I mean, my first job out of having my MBA, I was working with mostly middle-aged white men, and mm. just that journey of you know not only having to gain respect of my peers and my colleagues, I also had you know, risen into management and had some middle-aged men, white men reporting to me. Right. So it was, um, they were looking at you like, you've got my son or my daughter's job. Right. I've been there before. Right. Um, not just, just in, in the, the few companies that I've worked in, but it was, it was after 15 years of being the most senior black person in the organization of 3000 people and having to deal with microaggressions on a regular basis, I got to the point I was like, fuck this shit. <laughs> I'm done. I can't do it. I got to get out of here. Before I left corporate America, there was a professor who wrote this book called Are We Born Racist? Um, his name is Rudy 
Denton, and he was at UC Berkeley. And so I was in the Bay Area working at a Bay Area company, and I reached out to Rudy um, through his email and just said, hey, I read your book, Are We Born Racist? And in this book, they talked about different scenarios of where racism exists at all level of society. So in healthcare, in education, in housing. Um, and then there was this person who talked about their experience in corporate America, and it felt like it was a page out of my diary. Right. And I reached out to him. I said, hey, can I just talk to you about this book you wrote? And I'd love to talk about you know, the person that you interviewed as part of this experience. And he's like, yeah, sure, come to my office hours. And as I talked to Rudy, you know, he's a social psychologist. He does all of the research at UC Berkeley is racism and bias. And so all of his research is geared towards this. He's a Mexican-American. His wife is actually originally from Turkey. Right. And he's talked about his experience as a Mexican-American moving to this country. He lived in New York for a while, and then he got his PhD in New York and then started teaching at Berkeley. And his stories, although so different from the Black American experience, uh, a lot of those same struggles that we have within our own communities and then also assimilating to what would be considered white culture or American culture, um, his story just really st struck me as something super important. So I started working with him. He offered me a job in his lab. I was a research assistant helping him conduct EEG studies on the effects of racism and as a as a person of color having to present in an organization to all white people. And we hooked up their brain and electrodes and watched how just the differences in a white person versus a black person, depending on their type of environment or the person that they're reporting to. So like I started doing this research and it was just super interesting to me. I started taking classes under his leadership and working with him. And then out of that birthed my consulting business. I was like, I'm not going back to corporate America, but I want to help people with dealing with some of the things that I didn't have a name for right. when I was going through it. It's so, like the science of racism kind of thing. Right. <laughs> it's like the structure, like not only structural racism, I mean, you know you're black, so you have to deal with certain things in corporate America and you know what microaggressions are. We've, I mean, that's a buzzword now, so people are familiar with it. But actually looking at the effects on our bodies and the stress that it causes and having to speak up and not and be told I was being too sensitive when, you know, things would happen in my organization. And I'm always also looked at as the person to be the black voice. You want to ask me questions about black culture and ask me about black things because you're interested and curious. You want to touch my hair. <laughs> and then, you know, when I say this is offensive to me, right. it's like, but I didn't mean it. it. I wasn't, you know, you can't, they automatically think racism is a bad word. Right. So, and so many of them think racism has to be overt right. and in your face when it doesn't. Can right. you, for, for the people listening who may not know, can you just really quickly explain what a microaggression is? Sure, right? Microaggressions, I like to say it's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Right. It's like the small, like, so you have stereotypes and everybody knows what those are. And there's negative stereotypes specific, specifically around black people and black culture in this country. And when other people outside, say the majority culture, say white people, would see a black person and automatically assume negative stereotypes about you to be true. And so they approach you already having preconceived notions about who you are and will do things and treat you a certain way based off of negative stereotypes. And you are as a recipient of their actions or their words. And they may be well-meaning or not, 
it's still, still offensive to us. So it's the curiosity around my hair. So you reach out and touch it. And right. my response to you is, I'm not your petting zoo. Right. Please don't touch me. You know, their curiosity would trump my personal space. Right, right. Um, not just that. It's Even happened. when they don't mean any harm. They don't right. mean any harm by it at all. And I think it's the assumption that, you know, I'm in a corporate environment, the assumption that I'm the secretary or I'm the administrative assistant or I'm there to, to, to get lunch. When, no, I'm actually here presenting and I'm the most senior person in the room. Gotcha. So I've had those instances of being in corporate America and having somebody— Actually, it was a sales guy was coming to meet with me. I had a multi-million dollar budget for advertising. This guy was coming to me to 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 pitch me on some products, and he called me to the the office or the the people at the front desk said, "Hey, Melanie, your guest is here." I come out. He's on the phone. I guess waiting for me. And you know, I kind of look at him and I wave, and he gives me his his finger up, like, "Hold on, let me finish this phone conversation." And I look, and I look <laughs> at my watch. And I was like, let me go back to my desk because this is taking too long. Like you're here for my right. time. Hold on. Right. And then the lady calls me back from the front desk. Oh, you know, he didn't realize that you were Melanie. So he talked mm. to me on the phone. And at the time, you know, my maiden name, what is, uh, either way, Calhoun is not. Right. Uh, it's very ambiguous. Actually, right. it's very mm -hmm. white. Right. right. So <laughs> Melanie Calhoun, Johnson. you talked to Melanie Calhoun on the phone and you didn't realize that I was a black woman. So when I came to the door, he to thought meet you were Melanie's secretary coming to tell him it's going to be five minutes or what or whatever. In the front, the lady at the front desk was a black woman. And, right. and it's interesting because in that organization, I was the most senior black person in, in, in marketing and the most senior black woman in the company. And there was 3000 employees. Right. This was not a small company. Right. And I, especially in the corporate headquarters, it was it was I would get confused with other people all the time. And it oh, yeah, was, you know, black people look alike. All black people look alike. Yeah. So the short lady named Faith, even the ones who are 18 inches shorter than you, 18 inches shorter than me, completely different. Everything about us looks different. But she works in customer service or or he was the mailman or she was the administrative assistant. And they would get our names, not the man, of course, but they would get our names confused. Like, no, I'm not Faith. No, I'm not Sheila. Sheila's the administrative assistant, but because I'm black, you didn't even take enough time to get to know my face right. or my position. And so I was always constantly, as the most senior black person, I was always constantly trying to to earn or I guess to to get the respect that I deserved based off of my position. But they already had this idea that because I was a black woman, I was already in a lower position. Pay grade. Right. So this man comes to to meet me, doesn't know who I am, puts his finger up. They call me back. He comes, oh, I didn't know you were Melanie. I didn't know. I'm like, you could have looked at my LinkedIn. I've got a picture. Right. You did no work. But then you Or you could have just had some professional and ethics and, and just, talked to me. And got off the phone. Right. And the, you should have some homework, though. You go to, to meet somebody. You right. You had a, at least I'm stalking a on LinkedIn. Courtesy. I know everything right. about right. you. Right. 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 And so, I was all over her page before I even talked to her. <laughs> she probably was like, who is this? Who uh, is but, this? But it's interesting because the guy, I mean, literally, when I think about stereotypes, if I were to stereotype him, he was a college frat kind of white boy. Mm -hmm. Um. Um, probably his first job out of college and that, you know, he got this job right. probably because of a favor, his uncle or his dad. And he was so entitled that he could walk into an organization to try to sell me something and put his finger up in my face. At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting black futures. 
In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Telling me to hold on. Right. And then when he realized who I was, he was, you know, then he had all the questions. Well, how did you get this job? And what, you know, what's your background? (laughs) And I like, so he, now he's grilled. Now you're, you're supposed to be selling me, but now you're grilling me to see if I deserve to be here or not. Right. So those are the types of things. I was like, I'm done with this. This right, is right. foolish. I, I mean, can remember. Um, how did how did you handle that? That that What happened in that scenario? I'm, I just, so I looked at him. I mean, I barely made eye contact with him. It was, he already knew he had ruined the opportunity to, to sell so me something. So you didn't something. buy? I did not buy. <laughs> Good. But he definitely looked at me, um, tried to figure it out. Well, you know, like he didn't understand. He doesn't know how old I am because clearly black people tend we don't to. Cry. Don't, right. right. We look good for our age. And then he also wanted to hear my resume. So now you're in here trying to sell me, asking me, well, where did you go to school? Mm. You know, And I said, you know, I have an MBA. Well, where'd you get it? And I'm not giving, I didn't answer any I got it from your mama. That's where I got it from. I didn't answer. I, I was like, I, are you serious right now? And it was kind of like this disbelief. And he thought it was funny. But he he came in there and started grilling me to see. I think I, he, he knew at that point the sale was probably right. over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... It was, you know, hey, you know, is there other or pot positions in your organization? <laughs> Are you hiring? Like, now you're trying to get a job from me. Because I'm not going to make this sale, so I'm going to need a job. Oh, that's a disaster. It was, it <laughs> that was, was horrible. such a disaster, <laughs> but the entitlement in this man, he left there feeling like everything went well. And he called me the next day asking for my business. And I said I was busy. And, I, you know, like, I mm. just would send him to voicemail after that. But the audacity of someone to have that much arrogance. Right. right. I can remember being just on the marketing cool. floor at a little town, big White businessville. Privilege. And our SVP was walking by me, looked at me and said, hey, Jamel, the problem is Jamel isn't my name. And the brother that she was getting me confused with was actually named Jamal. <laughs> so she got it all wrong. Right. But enough of that. So one of the things we want to do, we're, yeah. we're pretty warmed up, but we love to ask some like kickoff questions, just sure. some really easy kickoff questions to let us get to know you, let the sure. listeners get to know you. So I'll ask you two really quickly. Uh-huh. When was the first time you remember feeling racism? It's, it's interesting. There is, I would say elementary school. Um, there were things that happened, and I don't think I had racism as the word for it mm-hmm. at the time, but I knew things weren't. Un- there were there were things that were very unfair. Right. Um, and I remember in first grade, and now as an adult, I'm like, that lady was racist. You know, I know my first <laughs> grade teacher back. was not. A, she was overtly racist. She made me and the Asian boy. We always were in trouble, mm-hmm. and they had these little um, these little badges with your name on it, and they had an airplane, so we called airplanes, right? And so she had this. File cabinet, the airplanes had magnets. You get these airplanes with your name on it. And if you had no issues by the end of the week and you didn't have to put your airplane away. So like when you're in trouble, you have to put your airplane back. And this is first grade. And I remember I always had to put my airplane back. And I didn't even, it was, and I had to sit 
at this little table in the back with the other Asian boy who was the troublemaker. And I remember I was a shy kid. I didn't talk a lot. But I just remember as a first grader always having to put my airplane back and feeling like it was so unfair because I didn't do anything. Mm. And I remember, I remember, and mind you, as a seven-year-old, I remember, first grade is what, six six and seven. seven. You were young, young as hell. I remember having to explain to my parents all the time why I was misbehaving. And I kept telling them I wasn't misbehaving. And I and I was like, I don't know why I have to put my airplane away. And there was one day there was a girl and you at the end of the week when you don't have to put your airplane away, you get a treat, whatever it was. And I remember one of my classmates, random girl, gave me she had some jelly beans. It was around Easter. She had jelly beans and she gave me some jelly beans at lunch. And I remember I put them in my pocket and I took them home. I kept them until Friday. And then when on Friday I showed my parents and said, hey, uh-huh. I got these jelly beans because I didn't put my airplane away, knowing that I had to put it away. And so I just, as a six, seven-year-old, not knowing how to process why I was always in trouble, but knowing enough to try to lie to my parents to show them, hey, I didn't get in trouble this week. Um, that was the first time I felt unfairness. Yeah. And then as an adult, I'm like, that bitch was racist. That's you know? right. It's crazy because like even, like even at that age, when you don't understand... Right. What racism is and what bias is. But we we recognize right from wrong. We right. recognize when we feel we feel disenfranchised. Right. right? You, you feel it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the second question is, and this is probably my favorite question. What do you love most about life while black? Oh, man. Black people are so dope. <laughs> <laughs> black people are great. I love black people. Like, I that's why I moved to Atlanta. I had to. We here. Black people are here. We are in the building. I will say my experience at FAMU taught me so much about black people and to love myself. So growing up, I grew up, I was born in Michigan, um, moved around a lot as a kid. I went to three different elementary schools and landed in Pennsylvania outside of Pittsburgh in some suburb where it was, we were the only black people in the neighborhood. And I graduated out of a high school class of 280, and there were three black people, one of which did not associate with her black identity at all. And then the guy was like— Uncle Ruckus. Right. And then the guy was my best friend. It was like me and Chaz. Like, Chaz was the homie. He was the captain of the football team. I was the drum major of the band. I was the only black person in the band, and I was drum major. And then I went to fam. Everybody like, you going to be in the band? I was like, hell no. (laughs) I can't do that. Listen, Um, the the scale in which I measured is different there versus here. We had core-style heel-toe marching. They didn't didn't high-step in Moon. Um, that's what the high, I went to Moon Area High School, <laughs> and it was interesting because this 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 environment that I grew up in, where it was all white, and I was the black girl, but she cool. I was a black girl, but she's in the AP classes. It's like people would say things like that to me, but I didn't really have a sense of black identity because of this environment that I was around. And both of my parents are educators, so my mom and my dad met teaching at the same high school. Right. My, my dad ended up spinning off into corporate America. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she still did. Like I knew she taught us how to read before we got to kindergarten. She was really into even language development. She would write children's books and would speak properly. And so we get into codes. We'll get into code switching in a little bit. It's like learning how to speak standard American English as my baseline would was what caused me at, later in life to be called 
that or to say that people say I sounded white. Right. But I just mm-hmm. learned standard American English. Um, and you get into black vernacular English and or slang or back in the 90s, they called it Ebonics. I hate that term. Super kind. I mean, it was horrible. But how do you identify black language, right? How do you? I've heard it called African-American English now. African, black English, right. African-American English, African-American vernacular English, because it's English, but there's different sl- slang and, and different words that you use. And I, and learning how to code switch as a child was, my dad was from Charleston, South Carolina. And if you're familiar with Geechee, oh, yeah. he would get on the phone with his uncles and I would not, or my uncles. He would switch I, it up hard, wouldn't he? I wouldn't he? know. I couldn't even follow what he was yeah. saying. <laughs> I would go to see my grandma in Charleston and they, and I was just floored at like, dad, what, what are you about? saying? What language are you? Like, growing in school in Louisiana, right. it was much the same, it's right? The same you thing. get in some of those places, that dialect gets so deep. Right. And they understand. I'm like, wait a damn minute. But I, it's beautiful, and it, it's like you're bilingual. You right. watch, and I, I have a, a girlfriend who works. It's she's she works in you know a big company, big huge Fortune 500 trillion dollar company, and she is Haitian American. Her right. mom. So I would hear her get on the phone with her mom, and she would start speaking Creole Haitian, and I like, and then she'll stop and talk to me. And then talk back to Look, her. I mom. didn't even know you could do that. And it's amazing to see. And that she truly is bilingual, but both of her languages are English, just different forms. I think it. it's, it's. I think it's a superpower we have. I think it I is. I honestly too. do. I think it is too. So when I grew up in this environment that was all white, I never fit in. I was too white acting for the black kids, and I was too black acting for the white kids. So I was right. in this weird space of white people would tell me I'm cool, but I'm black. Black people would be like, you're an Oreo. Right. Get out our face. And so it was like this in-between stage of, okay, well, I learned how to speak from my mom, and she didn't speak uh, Black American English or whatever you want to call it. She didn't speak that. But then I'd hear my daddy, and he would definitely do different things with language. And so growing up, I learned how to code switch very, very early on. It was something that was just natural right. because I learned it and I saw it, I observed it. And then when I went to fam and then I learned this down South talk right. and I went from saying you guys to y'all and you know, you adapt <laughs> to the environment you're in. And I love, I just, that's what, that's the thing. Black people are so dope because we can do so many things and like, not just, Turn it on and off, but we can, I mean, we are so creative. We have been able to make lemonade out of lemons and just everything from the arts to science, to literature, to, to music, to, to dance. Everything is, everyone tries to imitate us. Like black people's motto should be life. We do that. We do it. We do it. We kill it. It's so great. I love it. So for everybody listening today. Um, the topic we're going to go deep on is is code switching, and I've I've only been hearing the word code switching for maybe a couple of years now. But before it was, we, we reference it when we talk about acting white, speaking white, when we wear the mask, when we change who we are or how we are in order to fit in into what society deems as normal behavior, normal speech. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go a little deeper into that today. Um, but before we get in, and, and Art, do you want to read this piece? Or you want me to read it? How you want to work it today? Uh, you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll knock that out real quick. Okay, yeah. well, I'll yeah. introduce you then. <laughs> cool, cool. So, so Art is about to hit you with a piece. I've mentioned it on the show before because this is hands down my favorite piece of writing. I've told you all, like, every job I go to, it is always my silent protest. It's on every desk. 
from every job that I've ever worked at since my first job out of college. Um, and I'm shut up and hand it over it's, to Art. You know what? It's, 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 it's since you love it so much. I, I think you want me to read. Yeah, I want All you right. to read. I want cool. you to read that. I want to see how you you, cool. you put your 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 you into this to this right. wonderful piece. Cool. So the piece is called "We Wear the Mask." It's by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. It's a great piece. Um, and just like all the other pieces we 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 talk about on the show, it's significant because it was written so long ago. This was written in 1896, and it goes. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile. And mouth with myriad subtleties, why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but, O oh, great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but, O oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. Mm. When I hear that, what I hear Mr. Dunbar talking about over 100 years ago now is the need as black people in this country to shield for our protection who we really are from the rest of the world. And it's not just as it's commonly seen in corporate America. It's as we walk through the grocery stores. It's as we pick up our children from school and the civil right today. Um, we'll talk a little bit about it's in the courtroom. It's in the classroom. It's any place outside of the privacy and security of our own homes or tight knit circle of friends. Y'all got any thoughts on, yeah. on the poem? I, I it, it, it makes me think about any interaction that we have as black people with someone who's not black is there is a mass that actually generates and, and, and you present yourself in a different way in most instances. Um, right. Corp, corporate to, you're right, the grocery store to... You invite somebody into your home. Right. And it may be a different mask, right? Yeah. But yep. it's not, yeah. it's it's not, not authentically it's not us. Authentic, like, you can't come and just be you 100% of the time as a black man or a right. black woman. You, that, it just doesn't work. It just it doesn't resonate to everyone. And that is a reflection in 1896 that the same thing is going on in 2018. Melanie, what do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think when you think about how we have to interact with other people, my blackness is something I think about in every interaction that I have. Mm -hmm. And there's not one moment in my day where I get to think, not think about it. And I think that's the luxury that a lot of our Caucasian brothers and sisters have is that they have the luxury of being themselves. And that's it with no tie to what people would automatically think of them if they saw them coming. Right. Like I'm a black woman that you might not hear me open my mouth, but you've already have a pre preconceived notion of something about me that may or may not be true. Right. And so mm -hmm. because the world looks at me with negative stereotypes about black people and black women in particular, I have that in the back of my mind as I'm having any interaction. So it's 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 not only that I would have to wear the mask, it's 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 that my true authentic self, which I absolutely love and adore in a in a professional environment would be perceived if I say something a certain way would be perceived as aggressive, even if it's not aggressive. Right. It's she's an angry black woman. She's like so if I know the negative stereotype about me is that black women are these things, which most likely are not even true about me, 
I know that that is the lens in which I have to not only view myself because I know that they're going to be coming. That's the way that they view me. But how do I counteract that? And so that's the mask. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So one thing we want to do is we want to hit our civil right. Everything's about code switching today, wearing the mask. Um, And I want us to get to the, the meat of this conversation. So we'll go through the civil wrong pretty quickly today. Our civil wrong is by dialectism. And it's a word I'd never heard before doing my research, but it makes so much sense. I'll, I'll quickly read to you what it is. The basic assumption that the prejudice of the middle class white America cannot be changed, but must be accepted. Upward mobility, it is assumed, is the end goal of education. But white power will deny upward mobility to speakers of black English, who must therefore be made to talk white English in their contacts with the white world. That definition is from 1947. So it's old as well, but highly applicable to what we're dealing with today. In other words, prejudice against the language African-Americans speak is a major part of the systematic and institutional racism that denies so many today. And I want to bring this to light in a place that we all are probably familiar with. If you think back to the Trayvon Martin murder and the George Zimmerman case, the their star witness mm-hmm. was was Rachel Gentile, and I think I'm saying it right. And do you remember her mm-hmm, testimony? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to play a, a quick snippet so you can hear. But basically what happened is she was the woman who was on the phone with Trayvon when he was murdered. She was the star witness, and her testimony was expected to really drive the trial in, in our favor against George Zimmerman. And what happened was, as she spoke, the jury and the rest of the country listening formed this perception of her, this opinion of her, that she was beneath us, she was ignorant, she was slow. She wasn't trustworthy. And so much of it rests in how she speaks. Well, he, can we play that clip real quick? The funeral? Why I go to the viewing? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to see the body. Mm-hmm. I did agree with my friends that I was going to go. You got to understand. In order... It's you got to understand. Mm-hmm. Did, you you the last person talked to the person mm-hmm. and he died on the phone. After you talked to him, you got to understand what I'm trying to tell you. I'm the last person. You don't know how I felt. You think I really want to go see the body after I just talked to him? So the one thing that I liked about that clip that I want to point out is she's in court. She's on the stand and she's talking about why she didn't why she didn't go to the viewing. And she continually says over and over, you got to understand. But the unique thing about this is he nor the rest of the country really understood what she was trying to say. Right. So it was the way in which she spoke. It was the words that she chose. It was the order of the words. It was everything about her speech that threw the jury off and that. The prosecution, sorry, the defense, whichever side hell, mm-hmm. then jumped on in order to make an example of her and this case. Y'all have any thoughts on it? In court, like in, in any legal setting, right, when you think about the law, it, it, generally you, you get prepped, right, of, of what you should say, how you should say it. And it's almost like it should be relatively prepared, right? And when you when you hear her commentary or you hear how she 
came into that session, it 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 didn't seem like it was a cohesive message. So a lot of people probably wasn't they didn't understand. They couldn't mm-hmm. they couldn't capture the message of the essence of what she was trying to get to mm-hmm. because maybe she wasn't prepared or maybe the the impression is that she wasn't prepared for court. And it could be it could be a purely emotional component to it. Right. Um it it, it but the, the fact still remains that the power of what she said is still the power of what she said. Like right. humanity should be able to 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 reference she doesn't want to go see the body of the person that she just talked to who died. Like, right. She heard him die. There's humanity in that 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 should supersede any um any notion that her and her voice or her not being prepped was not adequate enough for that to be a credible um, testimony or a credible statement. Melanie, thoughts, ma'am? Yeah, I mean, I hear that, and I you hear the pain in her voice. And as a black woman who, you know, I mean, have have has have also had experienced loss, maybe not to the level of a Trayvon trauma right. in the loss. It's listening to her grieving her friend, and I immediately can connect with her just yeah. because of that humanity that Art was talking about. But unfortunately, no one else around. The and it was she was also trying to make the prosecutor hear her. Like you need to understand, and she kept saying that because she knew that there was a, a disconnect. Right. He didn't understand. And she right. was trying to make him understand. And using her emotion and her grieving to do that was completely lost on them, partially because they don't have humanity for black people. Right. Mm-hmm. We are not people. We, we, we People automatically think that we can um, endure more pain. We uh, are people who are uh, targeted and sh- shot down. And it's because of something we did. The justice system does not support us. We are actually, you know, taken um, to jail more than anybody else. I mean, mm-hmm. we've talked about all of these deaths and all of these names and all of these hashtags. And it's just you hear the pain in her voice. And because no one has humanity for black people except other black people. Right. Yep. She couldn't get her point across, even though she was begging him. to right. hear her. She said right. it multiple Absolutely. times. The thing that struck me is I, I feel like there were those two people in the courtroom having a conversation using the same, using the same words yet speaking two different languages. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, I compare it to if I were to sit here and have this conversation with you and you only spoke German, like how far would we get? Mm-hmm. Right. Even though, right. You are passionately conveying to me what it is that you feel. If I'm not in a place that I can understand what you're saying, this conversation is going nowhere. But no one seems to recognize that that's what's happening in this country so often. And that's why that's one of the reasons the need for code switching is so important. Mm -hmm. Her background, her experience, her preparation, whatever the case may be, didn't put her in a position to be able to effectively code switch and communicate that message. And in this case, the outcome was terribly wrong because of that. So I want to jump into the questions and I'm going to skip around. But that brings me to this question. What are your thoughts on prepping to be able to function as an adult? You know, not even as an adult, being able to function in this country, right? There's there, there's a thought process with that— non, With non-black people. Right. Yeah. Right. There, there's a thought process that there needs to be education for non-people of color about 
our culture because we do that for people who mm. travel out the country for business. Oh, yeah. yep. And at the same time, should code switching be taught to people of color in school? Should we learn more about it? Undergraduate, high school, middle school? Like, what are your thoughts on that? And then should we have to? So here's the thing. Okay, so code switching by definition is really about the the language. It's a lin- linguistic term. Right. Um, when you go to the broader sense and you're talking about behaviors and assimilation and culture differences, um, that's commonly understood as a code switch, right? Right. So when we talk about how when I was a kid and I saw the changes and I saw how I should act in church versus how I can act at home right. versus how I act at school, I learned how to do that very like very early on. And I think what happens with a lot of people, especially say our white people, is that they never, they could be themselves, their authentic self in any environment that they're in because it's, quote, accepted. Mm-hmm. And for black people, especially young black kids, you are already automatically appear to seem like you're older than you actually are. People are looking at you in this environment, down the streets, the police officers are already taking the humanity away from you. Right. So not only do you have to be very cognizant of when you leave your house, how you act, what you say, and how it's perceived by others. You have to, as a black person or as any person of color, you have to learn that so young that those that are the most successful at it are the ones that can go the farthest. I mean, yes, there's also a socioeconomic piece and there's also education as 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 a level of being able to assimilate into whiteness or white culture. But you have to learn very, very young what you can and cannot say in different environments because of the way that the reaction to your your blackness is already perceived as a threat. Right. So one of the things that makes me think about is the reason code switching has become as important as it is, is because the rules and the norms of the society in which we exist today are built on the realities and the behaviors of white culture. Right. Mm-hmm. So we, we take white culture and we extrapolate that to become the measure for all people in this country Mm -hmm. with the browning of America and that changing demographic. Do you see that changing as well? Not anytime soon. I I think I want to get to a place of where the media is not controlled by all white people. The, the, all of the government is not controlled. Every, in every area of life, white people are running it. Period. So, and until there's a shift in the power, there will not be a shift in what is accepted as culture. Right. Um, it's interesting because you see all of the white women who get features, plastic surgery features to be come uh, to take certain things of black women and become that, but not have the burden of actually being black. And those are the ones that are deemed beautiful. Kim Kardashian. I don't. <laughs> I, I wasn't even going to say that or her, but it's like look at her face. I will though. But but she's one, and I won't even say her. She's not the worst one. I think her little sister, the worst one. You are now you the self made billionaire, a self made billionaire, <laughs> right. with nothing but plastic surgery all over her teenage body. Mm-hmm. Now right. she's twenty one or whatever. But it's like all of those things. I saw the pre pictures of that girl. She was not attractive. Right. She had them hips. She didn't have. Anything, but we're not here to disparage right. women. It's just um, the burden of of being black and s- still having people steal from you and from hairstyles to 
body parts to dancing. It's ridiculous. And so the teaching of black children on how to assimilate is great. And one of the things that you kind of mentioned was, what do, you, do you teach white people the same thing? Right. Do you teach white people how to code switch to blackness? They do it anyway. That's the gentrify. That's the Columbusing of yeah. all of our stuff, right? And <laughs> we're, we're trying to fit in by being them. They're trying to stand out by being us, right? And it's funny because I, my husband was talking about this. He's, um, of course, a black man, and he's very pro. First of all, I love that you said, "Of course, of course, of course, of course. a black man." <laughs> Amen. That's what we do. Okay, good. Sorry, he, I digress. He is very. I mean, he had a very similar upbringing where he was one of the only. My my experience of being one of the only black people in an in an all white environment in education, and his experience in a very similar. He was in upstate New York, but his environment was very uh, was a lot less forgiving of a black man as it was for me as a black woman in Western Pennsylvania, him in upstate New York, he was called nigger every day. Like he was treated mm. horribly and he was in this environment. And so he moved to Atlanta when he was in high school. And this was the first time he had been around black people, you know? Right. So his transition to how do I assimilate into this culture now that I'm, I want to be here. I'm black. I, I want to, I, I don't know how to talk to black people. Right. And so eventually, you know, music is what brought him to his comfort. He was listening to Public Enemy. He was listening to black music. And that's how he connected with black people because his own environment that he came from, he didn't have that. Right. And so, Sounds like Danielle from uh, an earlier episode. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things yep. that, that he really can't stand is that when people, especially white people, um, come to him and do things that are stereotypically black. Mm -hmm. And he is a very pro-black man, but he's like, you're not going to make a monkey out of me. So the like other day... With that fist bump. He's like, you're not <laughs> What's gonna, up, Don't do it. Well, don't do it. That's exactly what happened. So he was... We, were, we have a, a white woman that's our chiropractor, and typically we have all black everything, black everything, black bank, all black, black insurance, <laughs> yes. lawyer, tax accountant, all you of You can't see, she's, she's almost wearing all black too. Mm -hmm. I do, yeah. So we have black service providers for everything and we ended up getting connected with this, I, I'm, if she listens to this, good, I want you to hear it. It's this <coughs> chiropractor, a white woman, she... She's from New York, you know, very, very, you know, very friendly, but kind of out loud, outgoing, just very white New Yorkish. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he said, Melanie, let me tell you what this lady did. She came at me with the very high hand, trying to dap him up, trying to give him the high hand. And he stuck his hand out to shake it like a regular person. He said, she's not going to dap me up trying to have me give her any type of black cred. <laughs> no, you're not doing that. I'm not. I'm not here for your entertainment or for you to have fun with. Like right, no. right. And you so I think a lot about. Of for me. I think about how you President Obama, did I was Kevin just Durant, thinking about that's, that when I t President Obama was the code switch king. Yo. because he will handshake a white man and get and see Kevin Durant and give him the brotherly love that he deserved and 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 and. and, and Switch right back. That video where they show I him walking out is like he, he he shakes two hands and, and he daps the brother up and yeah, the song my nigga yeah. comes in and yes. I started dancing and then <laughs> and then he and went back to shaking them white people hand the regular way and I that think need to be when the that, picture for Coach. I love it like and he like <laughs> President Obama could go to Jamaica open up with Wagwan Jamaica right and 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 I'm like. Man, I love this man. And leave the mm -hmm. office with President Obama out. Right. And leave it out. 
And I, I just I watched this man go to any environment and not um, Columbus, their culture. Right. It yeah. was really paid tribute. To right. He respected it. Yeah. Right. Genuinely. So, right. A genuine respect for the culture. I love is, it. Is, I love it. And so when this and white lady tried to, tried to dap him up like President Obama had, had dapped up Kevin Durant. He was like not having it. And then I looked on her Instagram and she doing the um in my feelings challenge. <laughs> I, I kid you not. And I'm just like, this white lady need to go sit down. And it's it's this, I mean, I can't I can't stand it. It's like just let us have our stuff. Yeah. You know, we are creative, we are innovative, we are enterprising. And white people see that and they want it. But please don't use me as your as your monkey. Right. Like I'm not I'm not here to help you get your feelings of what you think black culture is. I'm mm-hmm. not here to to give you that. Right. So I love that we're in this room with us and we can talk freely about these experiences because my husband was not here for it. Your chiropractor makes me think about uh, in the movie Girls Trip. Was it um, <sighs> yeah, the the, like the, the manager or yeah, whatever she was? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. She was trying entirely too hard and it's like, yo, like, that's not cool. Like when you try that hard, it's not genuine. Yeah. Right. You need to relax. Everybody just be white. It's yeah. cool. Like y'all are white. Just do that. Just that's be what white. You, you know, and like, let us have us. And if we create something within our community, that's not for you. Right. You don't have to be black for me. Like I like some. I like white people. Yeah, totally. I do too. Right. Yeah. That's some I mean, cool, we're, some we're, cool ass white people. People of color are really compassionate, so we right. we, we like we radically white compassionate. Too, right? yeah. <laughs> but this podcast is called Wild Black, black. and Wild this black. is our experience. Yes. And I like it's hard. It really is hard when I think about the times of where I've had to code switch or assimilate, and I talk think about my my time in corporate America, especially because my inner nigga is like ready to fire. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Shit, I gotta keep it close. You gotta suppress it. <laughs> and it's like, I can't, I can't. Why are y'all laughing at me? Every, Cause everybody, everybody got an inner nigga, but I love the way you put it. Has suppressed the inner nigga. That, that's, yes. And so now that I'm out on the outside of corporate America, like, I get to say it. I get to do it. I get yep. to tell people about themselves. And I use this example in corporate America, this one story, I was in the, this is an organization, like I said, major Fortune 500 company, lots and lots of um, uh, white people in this company. And there was one black man in the sales force of over 300 people. Now, this is not a small company. This is a big company. One black man. That's a shame. And we're at the sales meeting. I'm the first marketer. And I'm like, oh, he sees me. He like, hey, we give each other the look. I'm the like, black woman. And so I was like, we, 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 we got to know each other. Yeah. We, we did the head nod. And I was like, let me sit next to him. Because he, he's like, are you in sales? I was like, no, I'm a, you know, I'm a marketing executive. I, you know, I just started. It's my first sales meeting. And we're having like a little side conversation. Mm-hmm. And the sales meeting is we're in the, you know, the, the stage is going on. And there's a DJ and there's people there. We're all here. And we're kind of having a side conversation. And next thing you know, the lights hit us. Mm. And I'm like, oh, shit. Like, what happened? Like, oh, no. Like, okay, clearly we were having a side conversation. They caught us. And the DJ comes over and is, like, motioning for him. His name is Gary. I'll just say that. What up, Gary? So, Gary, they're like, Gary, come on, come on. And he's just like... What? I'm confused. And they kind of point at me. I was like, nah, like, I'm good. And so he's like, Gary, come on, come on, Gary. And so Gary gets up and he goes on stage. And he's like, okay, like, we're already in trouble. Like, we got caught. Right. 
Somebody said, hit that silent alarm they got on us. No, they didn't pick Gary out because they said it's the dance competition. Hell no. So you were not only pan Hell no. He had no idea what was going on. So he had to walk up there and then on stage in front of all of his so colleagues. He doesn't know why he's he walking has up. no idea. He had, they had hand-selected the only black man in the room and told him he was in a dance contest. This literally happened in 2016. And this is the company that I most recently left. Wow. They told Gary to get on stage and dance. And I was like, Gary, don't do it. Gary, don't do it. But then it's like, you're damned if you, you do, you're you, damned right. if you don't. You, you, if you check you're out, you're the angry black you're man. Yeah. You're not the team player. Oh, like, and you're in front of everybody. Oh, he's that kind of black like, guy. Stereotypically, I want Gary to like put blood on the dance floor. Like, dance the shit out of like them. Like, if he did some shit like this. <laughs> like, something. But it just, black I would love it. But he had this goofy white man up there who was mm. doing a worm. Stop and it. then Gary sitting up there like his arms folded like, damn, I got to dance. Just rock with like, it, Gary. Gary, don't dance. I'm like, but Gary, you kind of got to dance. Right. You got to dance, And it Gary. just made me so sick because I was like, they handpicked him. And I was like, right. why did they? So as soon as Gary danced, and he, was it cool? he did win the dance competition. Of course, of course. But it made was me it so cool? angry. It, was not, it wasn't cool to me. I was angry. The, the fact that they pulled him out of a floor from at least you said there were 300, 300 people, people. And he was the one black man in the room. That's crazy. They hand selected well, him. the diversity. It was so. It made me so mad because like they had little things where they pull people out of the audience, and he had gone the day before, mm-hmm. so it, he had already done his little onstage m- moment. But they picked him the next day specifically for this dance competition. So as soon as that was over, I went to the VP of HR. I walked right over to her. The CMO was in the room. All these the the VP of sales was in the room. I went over to them and I told them, you know, that's completely inappropriate. Right. I said, I'm mortified that you made Gary dance. Oh, he had fun. He liked. I said, doesn't to, matter. I said to handpick the one black man, and this is why I told the LOHR lady to shuck and jive, and telling a black man to dance is completely unacceptable. Right. And I am not okay. There's historical with it. connotations to that. And he said, well, he seems like he was. I don't care. I'm telling you, it was offensive to me. And if they and could get in his head, he'd seem like I didn't have a choice. He in the didn't matter. have a choice. And, I, right. and also, same company, the CMO white man had an administrative assistant who was a black woman who. We had Halloween, of course. White people in Halloween always mess it up. So this this woman, (laughs) shout out to Little Town Big Businessville. (laughs) Oh man. She dressed as a 70s woman. Like, it was like, that was the whole theme, was dressed for the decades. And I think I dressed as, like, a 60s. So for my Halloween costume, I dressed as Bad Sandy. Do you know who Bad Sandy is? No. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Have you seen Grease? yeah, white yeah. Lady yeah okay Remember okay she, when she yeah. got all and she had an, all her little black and had her little red lips yeah 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 I got so you. I I got you. I, I what's her name again Sandy. Okay, got you, got you. So bad Santa. I, I, yeah. I thought you said bad Santa. I was like, no, Santa's bad, bad Santa. Bad Sandy. So there's good Sandy was like the little corny little Yeah, white yeah I got you. And then bad Sandy was the little sexy one, right? And so I said I was going to do something that was going to, as my Halloween costume, as I was thinking, I was like, let me not do anything that's going to make, let me do something that's for them. Because this is Halloween. It's definitely, I'm in this work environment. I'm the most senior black person. Let me do something that's. Right. Appropriate. So I was I had on like a little black outfit and I had on a little black wig and I wore red lipstick and I was bad. Nobody knew who I was. They thought I was Whitney Houston. But I said, no, I'm bad Sandy from Greece. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We got it. But I didn't wear white face. So maybe that's why they were confused. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm like, okay. so uh, Sheila, the black lady. 
dressed as a 70s woman. So I was from the 60s, from the from, from Greece. She was from the 70s. And she had like a big blonde afro, afro. and a shiny little dress, like a disco black lady. Mm-hmm. And the CMO... She thought the, she, you would like that. I thought it was cute. It was, she was actually really cute. Okay. She had like little clear... Like she had on little clear p- platform shoes. Like right. she did it. She did it up. She did mm-hmm. it up. Black people, we do life. The black, the black administrative assistant to the CMO. The CMO white man... Decides that she's Tina Turner. Now, mind you, I've never seen Tina Turner dressed like the way she was dressed. But he decided that she was Tina Turner. And for the day, he called her Anna Mae and told her to eat the cake. Now, this little white man has seen what love got to do with it and has seen that scene and thought it was funny. So the CMO, the chief marketing officer of this Fortune 500 company, has called his administrative assistant throughout the day, Anna Mae, and told her to eat the cake. And I'm sitting here like mortified for her, and she kind of laughing, ha ha ha. And I'm like, see, she Again, don't have a she's choice. She's in that, she's in that. What do I do situation? Yeah. So I was, I'm sitting here stewing. I'm like, choice, let no me choice. see how I feel about this. Let me sleep on it and see how I feel about it tomorrow. And then the next day, and he now continues. Her new nickname is Anime. So it's now January. Hot, October 31st was Halloween. It is now January, February. He's still calling her Anime. So he's given. Approval, tacit approval for other folks to do the same thing, and really. Nobody else knew what it was even talking about. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't, this connected. white man thought he was being cool and down. Okay, and gotcha. he knew this movie. So he calling her anime and telling her to eat the cake. Now, this is a corporate environment. She's Jesus. his assistant. And he's the chief marketing officer. And he's telling this black woman for months to eat the cake anime. And I'm sitting there every day like, damn it, I hate these people. And I went and I went to HR and I told, well, Sheila didn't have a problem with it. I don't care if Sheila had a problem. I with have it. a problem with it. And it's not. And Sheila was like, no, he was just kidding. And I'm like, no, this is your job and you're his assistant. Right. So he's it's like by your name. These, right? are, not, these are things. Not only yeah. are they calling me by the wrong name, he's now calling her anime, telling her to eat the cake. And this is just the environment that we were in in corporate America. It's like, how much do you suck up? And she couldn't speak out even if she had a problem. So she just swallowed it and said that she was cool with it. But hell no, yeah. will no white man tell me to eat the cake for months thinking it's funny. And if and I and I told the HR lady, she's like, well, I don't understand. What does that mean? I said, watch the Go scene. Watch the I movie. sent her the <laughs> link to the scene. I said, it's where Ike Turner was abusing Tina Turner. And he was not only... Uh, Domestic abuser. He was mental, uh, mental all, physical, all of this. Yeah. And I said, and it was the most horrifying moment in this movie where he was beating her. Right. And now the CMO thinks that that is appropriate to to, to refer to his administrative assistant as that. And they made all kinds of the Melanie, you're being too sensitive. She didn't have a problem with it. And he he won't do it anymore. But it's not a problem. And I'm sitting here like these people have lost their minds. So you make the black man dance. You call him the lady anime. Y'all calling me Sheila and Faith or whoever my name isn't. And I just got so tired of it. And it was and that was the transition of me out of corporate America. And so now the beauty is that I get to tell corporate America now hires me to come in to find out what's actually happening. So my client right now is an organization of 150,000 white, 86 percent of them are white women, 150,000 person organization where 86 percent of them are white all women and they want to know why the people of color are leaving or the people who are diverse and in their minds it's not just color it's religious right. it's latina it's yeah, it, you know people so, of color. so people of color but also you're talking about people of different religions and like jewish and people who are disabled people in wheelchairs and they're having a inclusion issue and so i went in and i said okay well what i propose is that you let me talk to some of your the people who are there to find out about their environment 
And I, I said, I set up 20, 30 minute interviews with people all over the country. Not one of those interviews was let was 30 minutes. They all went hours. I'm talking, I would talk, there's a lady from Montgomery. They had some stuff to say and they, they were probably stuff. still guarded. And, still. They, and I was like, listen, I'm an outsider. I'm not part of this organization. And you're a person of color. And I'm a person of color. And here's the things that happened to me when I was there. Boom. You know? And so they opened the, they had a voice. I, I took notes. I took recordings. I also had some quantitative questions so that I survey questions. I did a little survey monkey and I presented the findings back to this board and they were mortified and had no idea this was going on. I said, well, here's why. Real, people- one question. Mm-hmm. Were they mortified because they didn't know what's happening mm-hmm. or were they mortified that the people felt that way both. and they didn't necessarily believe it? But Well, kind of both. So they were like, so it, it was the whole microaggression conversation mm-hmm. of you didn't necessarily mean to create this environment that's not inclusive and it's not yeah. overt racism. Right. But it's the same thing with Jerry dancing. Well, we think black people like to dance. They're good at it, <laughs> you know? So it's like you automatically have these stereotypes about yeah, black people. These that biases you, that you've, you've created. And, and you don't think that it's a problem. And they and you, and you, in your heart, are curious about the hair, so you touch it. And it's not to be offensive. And so part of it is you're in an organization, you're in a white space, and you're a black face in a white space. And you want diversity and inclusion. That's what everybody says. Well, we want to bring black people and people of color. We want them here. But then it's like the environment once they're there is that you say you want a black face, but you really don't want a black voice. You don't want a right. black experience. You want someone that's black that acts and, and talks just like you. Right. And so the biggest hurdle you want them to in look teaching different but people, act the same. Yeah, and and, and as as these organizations have brought me in to do the work, they have a hard time they're kind of in denial about what oh, yeah. environment they are. And then once the light goes off, they're mortified. They're like, wow, I didn't know that that was wrong. And so now it's like I have to reteach these people on how to treat people of color a certain way without offending them. And so that whole microaggression, that death by a thousand paper cuts, they'd had no idea that they were even causing anything because it was from a genuine place. So... The work that I do is really fun because now I get to tell people about it. When I was in corporate America, they were telling me that I was the problem. Right. But now they're hiring me to come in and actually find the problem. And I get to tell them without any type of filter. So we're running. We're starting to run short on time, but I got to follow up to that. And I want to ask another question. Do you have like post follows? Like, do you go back in a year or whatnot and talk to these people and say, hey, the summary findings were reported out. Are things better? Right. Are you involved in that? Yeah, I am. And I think part of what I do is not only create these um, strategies to fix it. So, like, now the first thing is identifying the problem. So, so, fine. You guys realize that you're the problem, but you don't know what to do because this is, like, it's not just an organization issue. This is a life issue. You're a white person. All your Facebook friends are white. All your best friend, everybody around you is white. And so the people of color that you interact with, you probably are doing things and you just don't know. So it's like, how do you train them one time to not only know what their issue is, but then give them the the playbook and the roadmap to be able to, to correct their behavior and then go back in a year and say, right. what are the changes? How have you done? What have you done different to create a more inclusive environment? Gotcha. Um, and so it's 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 a hard conversation to have, but you have to give them like it's one thing for them to realize something was wrong and that they were a part of it. And then you have to deal with their 
mortified. Like, I'm mortified because I'm not racist. And that's that right. whole triggering of there are white tears and their right. emotion of, like, I didn't mean it. And, you know, now I'm the victim because I didn't mean to hurt you. So then you have to break mm-hmm. down. It's like peeling this onion. It's like layers and layers and layers. And then finally, it's like, here's how you create an, a truly inclusive environment. And it looks different wherever you are. It looks different in Memphis as it looks in Atlanta, as it looks in Utah or Arkansas or wherever. So it's like you have to um, adapt to the environment, but you also have to give them um, a a roadmap to get there because they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. Gotcha. So one of the things happening Hmm. in pop culture right now is the movie Sorry to Bother You, right? And such like, a good movie. <laughs> the premise of the movie is based off of this concept of code switching. Have you seen the movie yet? I haven't. I haven't. Okay, I haven't okay, seen okay, it yet. Okay, either. okay, okay. I, I, so I read about I it. Now watch this. clips. So no, please. don't watch. Don't, don't read the clips. Don't. No. I'm not going to try my best to not do spoilers. But this was the first. I just had a baby in May, so this was the first date night I had with my husband. Yeah, the wife and I are trying to go see it today. <laughs> it is so. I mean, oh. it gets crazy. I'll say the end is kind of crazy and stupid. But there was a scene <clears> that was Jerry. Or Gary from uh, from mm-hmm. the company that I just talked about with the dancing. There was a scene in this movie without giving the spoiler away. It was like I just I could give you the premise. The premise is this man had to put on a white voice to ascend in the ranks of this company. He's a telemarketer, right? And the movie is so good. And it was what's the guy's name? Uh, what's his name? La- the, the, actor? Yeah, the actor. I cannot Terrence. remember his name. It's, uh, he's I, up and coming. You see him in Atlanta. He's, he's in a couple joints. He's the weird guy that was in um. Uh, Get out. Get out. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Latarence. I, I cannot I remember feel like his, his name. name is something. Anyway, this man is a brilliant actor, and he is you know got this telemarketing gig just to make ends meet, um, and. It was Dan- Danny Glover sitting next to him in the little telemarketer. I was a telemarketer. I did it for like a week and then quit because it was horrible. Right. Um, but he he was, he'd basically get put him on game. He's like, Cassius is his name. He said, you got to use your white voice. When he used that white voice, that was hilarious. And it wasn't even just like a black man using a white voice. It was actually a white voice. Right. Like they used a white actor and he was <laughs> lip syncing to mm. a white man. And oh, it was wow. like. Which makes it so much fun. It's hilarious. And. He puts on his white voice and he ascends to all of the success in this organization. And he's now promoted and promoted and promoted. And now he's being invited to these parties. And so the one spoiler that I'll give you is that he was invited to this party and it was all the top salespeople and they're all white. And the guy who the CEO is there and he's a white man and he tells uh, Cassius to take off his white voice. So he's now in this environment. He's able to be himself. He said, well, you're from Oakland, California. I know you know some hood. Like, what's up? You you from the streets. Wow. Um, why don't you give us a rap? And he's like, oh, right. He's like, oh, man, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, you know, get on stage and, and, and spit a rap. You know, we would love it. Let's spit a rap. And he's just like, I don't, uh, what? I'm not, I'm not a hip hop artist. And I was like, damn it. Gary's about to have to dance. And so Cassius gets on stage and he starts to rap. And it is the funniest thing. And I want you to see this movie today. I'm going to go check it out. Really? Wife, we're planning on it. Okay. And it gets crazy at the end. The end, like the last 20 minutes of the movie kind of threw me off. And then my baby was having issues. So like our babysitter was calling me. And so I stepped out for the last five minutes of the movie. And then I was going back in and everybody was leaving. Oh. I was like, dang, I missed the last five minutes of the movie. And uh, my husband was like, 
Yeah, you need to go come back and see the last five minutes of the movie because I left and it was like, how did it end that quick, right? So the the end of the movie gets kind of crazy, but that's what I'm saying. Don't read the spoilers about the end of the movie. Okay, I'll stay away from The premise of code switching and being and putting on your white voice to get success and then selling out. And so you had people that were like trying to unionize and the lower level employees were trying to do something in the community. They were on the front lines and, and cash just crossed over the picket line and, and continued to work when every all of the everybody else started to boycott. Mm. So it's an amazing movie and um what's the guy's name? It's a rapper who is the writer and the director. It's a rapper from Oakland. Boots Riley. Boots Riley, that's it. That movie was brilliant. I love it. Love it. Love it. I'm a I could plug it all day long. I can't wait to okay. check it out. I'm going to see that. All right, my last question. Can you be woke and still code switch? I think that's survival. I think that's absolutely yes. And I think that's survival. We, I mean, we're woke in this room and then we have to go out and live in the world and wear the masks that we have to do just to put food on the table and to stay alive. Um, I have a black son. And it's funny because like as he's learning language, I'm like very meticulous about how I teach him when he makes mistakes because even the language differences, it's like you could, I want him to be able to code switch but I need you to learn to function outside in the real world because it's hard for black children, for black men, especially black women. We all have a journey. Like, it's not easy. All right, you got anything before we get out of here, man? I'm texting my wife now to see this movie. You got to see that movie today. <laughs> Go see it today. Now, again, this crazy. I'm giving you the, the ending is this, the disclaimer is it's crazy. But that movie was brilliant as it relates to being black and having to assimilate and what that actually means. And that does to our, uh, a psychological frame. Like mm-hmm. we have so much weight just walking in this world as black yes, people. Right. And Completely everybody agree. needs therapy. A hundred percent get you a black therapist. Everybody yes. needs it. I'm with that. I'm completely with that. And you can't get through life without some help. Yes. You gotta have, we some have help. a burden and I, and I love black people and I love being black and I wouldn't want to be any other way. Well, come Monday yes. morning, I'll put on my shoes and shirt, maybe a tie. I'll grab my mask and I'll walk out the door. So we're getting ready to get out of here. Everybody remember, when your inner nigga stands up and wants to scream, have a quick conversation with him or her. Uh, Keep him in check as much as you need to to maintain your lifestyle. Find another outlet to let them out. Maybe something powerful that's going to help the people. I think this is our inner nigga outlet right here. Absolutely. Uh, And we're going to keep on growing and going until we get where we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you for tuning in. Thanks. Melanie, thank you for coming on. Yeah, Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Peace.